Hello, and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Hugh Ross, and I'm joined here by Jeff Swery, and today uh, we'll be your guide as we explore the topic of uh, intelligence and what's happening in the early universe. But before we get into this discussion, I wanted to encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, Reasons to Believe uh, YouTube, and click on uh, the bell icon so you can be informed of our new videos. Learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at rtb underscore official. Well, Jeff, let's begin with you. You got something intelligent to say about whether or not uh, computer software is intelligent? Well, hopefully so, it's intelligent, but uh, you know, I know you've played around with ChatGPT and sure. in these other these new l- large language models that they've got out there, and I mean, you know, I find them kind of impressive. Uh, my first foray or just playing around with that, I thought, you know, hey, I'll make my job easier here. I just gave it a, a prompt and said, "Here's a link. Can you write me a five paragraph essay on the apologetic implications from a Christian perspective of this article?" And what I found interesting, two things. One is that when I first did that, it wrote a fairly good five-paragraph essay on a different article that I wasn't actually talking about. I I can't even remember what I was, but it ended up talking about Coco the Gorilla. (laughs) Uh, But I said, no, I thought I was referring to this article. And so once it got the article, it wrote a pretty reasonable essay about the apologetic implications of this. And so kind of has this sense of, it really understands what's going on. So are you worried about your job now, Jeff? <laughs> Not really. Uh, one, oh, I could explain why for, for a number of reasons. But what is fascinating about these large language models is that they're really good at providing, or rather they've gotten to the place where they are really good. It used to be they were just pathetic or very bad. Right. But well, their efficiency cer- at doing things is remarkable. They're certainly fast. I mean, within seconds, it spits out the article for you. Yeah, and and I find that by and large they're pretty good. I mean, they're not elite high end like you know high end research or anything, but nonetheless they're pretty good. And I, I actually spent a fair bit of time kind of trying to understand how, in general, at least how these things work. And uh, one of the things that I, I I'm going to talk about kind of a, a negative aspect of this, or a or at least what I would say is a, a red flag that we need to be aware of, and kind of the context. For my discussions here, I, you know, I was thinking back about some of the, the things that I brought up, and it would, I think it would be very easy to look at what I've done and say, oh, just very negative about the technology or what AI can do. And I think what I'm concerned about is that I see this really great potential for what we could use AI for. But if we don't understand it, it's got these negative consequences. And if we're not careful, the negative consequences are going to overwhelm the good we could do out of it. Yeah. And, and, it'll, and, and that could show up in two different ways. One is that we just don't realize what the negative consequences, we let it out there and people end up getting hurt. But the other is kind of like, a, I would say, a, a, a nuclear, uh, nuclear energy type response to it is that nuclear energy has great potential. There's a lot of good things about it. But... 
you have a discussion about nuclear energy today, and it's just in the context of, ooh, nuclear energy is bad. It causes harm. It's dangerous. It's because there were a few things that happened at a particular era of time, and it just flavored everybody's perception of nuclear power as being negative. In fact, I, I, I recall when uh, the... I forget the the name of the earthquake, but when the tsunami hit Japan, right. there was just a lot of discussion about how, because of the nuclear reactors that were on the, the shore in Japan, had some radiation release, that you could detect that radiation even in America. Right. And I remember thinking, and I made a comment in a couple of podcasts, it's like, I, I hope that this negative reaction to the nuclear leak, I'll just put it that way, it was very minimal, that that doesn't, that that doesn't cloud people's judgment in going over to help people in Japan. And I think in retrospect, there were people who didn't go help because they were worried about the nuclear fallout, which was really inconsequential at the time. And so that's kind of what I'm concerned about here, because what the the particular discovery was found, and you know, I know you found this as well. That you, I mean, I, I actually, I'm going to ask. Just I'm curious what your perception is as you've interacted with ChatGPT. How does it do at answering questions? What do you see as its reliability? Those sorts of things. It's very open to being corrected. In okay. fact, the people who wrote the software encourage you uh, to correct it because okay. this is the way they can make ChatGPT better. If they get human experts feeding back and saying, you know what. Uh, I went off on a tangent here. Uh, I, I guided it this way, and I got better results. Mm -hmm. They actually build that in uh, because right now it's a beta release, which means they're working on making it better. Mm -hmm. So ChatGTP will get better, but I think it demonstrates that there's no way you can replace a human expert. Mm -hmm. It takes a human expert to guide it to what you want it to do. I mean, just to give you an example, you had it write a five-paragraph uh you know, mm -hmm. uh, article, uh, you could have looked at that and said, you know what, uh, there's some things here that I think could be improved. You can go back to Ch chat GPT, point that out and ask it to redo it and it'll do it for you. Mm -hmm. And so you can step by step, get closer and closer to the excellent product you want, but you just can't let chat GPT do it on its own. Uh, you, you need that human to guide it along. And so, and there's, mm -hmm. In fact, I think we did a Star Cells and God months ago where I talked about a team of Japanese uh, AI experts who basically did experiments where they let the artificial intelligence just do it on its own, mm -hmm. let the human experts do it on its own, but they quickly discovered you get the best results when you partner artificial intelligence with the top human experts, where the human experts basically guide the AI in the beginning, and then towards the end, they let AI finish the, finish the job. And they made the point that you get the, it's not that the human experts can't do it without AI, but with AI, the human experts can achieve their objectives much faster, blazingly faster. Mm -hmm. So it might take you, say, two days to write a, mm -hmm. an article you're happy with, you can work with ChatGPT, and you can probably knock it out in an hour. So that that's interesting your description there because that's the the related to the nature of the discussion or the the paper that I wanted to talk about <clears throat> because one of the things you know, I mean these sorts of AIs yeah, and not just 
chat GPT, but just the, the AI behind that, the AI philosophy behind that, or the, the technology behind that is being used for medical diagnosis, you know, look at this, tell, you know, get, is there tumors in this x-ray scan, those sorts of things. Right. It's being used for uh, in, in potentially in legal discussions of, you know, is this you know, guilt and what sort of sentencing, those sorts of things. And in your discussion, one of the things that you wanted there is that interaction with humans of saying, okay, so, uh, you know, ch- you know the, whatever the AI is going to come and say, here's the answer, here's what you want the human to be able to push back and interact with it. And that's actually what they're looking at here because they wanted to investigate, given how effectively these AIs can solve complex reasoning problems, do they actually understand what's going on or are they just memorizing patterns and applying them to what's going on? Right. And one of the, the, the particular questions that they asked to get at this in the paper is, you know, can chat GPT defend its belief in truth, uh, evaluating LLM reasoning via debate and the and large language this models. This is a conference proceedings from a conference over in Singapore. So Got it's it. fairly, fairly recently yeah. out. Um, one of the interesting things about, or so, so to go in and look at it, uh, what they did was had uh, ChatGPT. You know, looked at other other media that, or not other media, other instances of this sort of technology. Had them so, had the the AI solve a problem, and then they wanted to interact with it. And now, the moment you start interacting, there are other things you have to watch out and watch watch out for. And one of those, which I thought was just very fascinating, have you ever heard of the clever Hans effect? No. So there was this horse uh, back in the early 1900s who its owner claimed, uh, you know, it could add, subtract, multiply, divide, work with fractions, tell time, keep a calendar, distinguish musical tones, and read, spell, and understand German. You know what? I heard about you this. You have heard about a, Clever Hans, okay. <laughs> in elementary school, I heard really? about Really? Okay. Yeah. I, I had, never, I, I had heard, heard about that. it a long time ago, <laughs> right? but it's been more recently that I was like, okay, I realized what it was. And, uh, you know, so of the sorts of things that this horse could do is like, uh, say, give a question. If the eighth day of the month comes on a Tuesday, what date is the following Friday? And the horse would tap out 11, you know, and, right. and it wasn't just that question. It was, you could vary days of the week, whatever sorts of things. And, and apparently this could be done orally and uh, written and the horse would give the answer. And what was fascinating, it's like, you know, they'd look at it and by all intents, it seemed like this horse understood all these things. Right, right. <laughs> and what they eventually tracked all of it down to was not that it wasn't related to the trainer, uh, the, the owner or trainer actually being there. But what would happen is that if the people who are around knew the right answer, there are very subtle, almost involuntary, unconscious cues you give that you're getting close to the right answer. You know, in particular, you kind of, I forget exactly what it was, but effectively you kind of raise your eyebrows, (laughs) tip your head, and then when you get to the right answer, you relax. And so the horse, being so social, had cued itself into these cues. But nonetheless, people thought the horse could add and subtract all these things, you know, that this intelligence was associated with it. Why I found that interesting is that when you're interacting with these models, or these uh, AIs, you have to be careful that you don't have a clever Hans effect going in there, that right, they're not right. reading off cues. And so they work to mitigate that. But I still, I just thought, you know, a horse that can do that. I mean, 
Regardless of whether it's intelligent or not, just the sophistication to be able to recognize and do that was fascinating well, to me. Well, the amazing thing about Hans is that, uh, you know, he was so in tune with human beings, he could read their subtle bottle language. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's impressive just for whole other reasons. Right, it just, for other reasons, right. It, it, the horse didn't know how to add. That was the problem. So, <laughs> so what they did was instead of having hum humans interact with this, they would have chat GPT or, or, you know, these models that would do that. And then they would uh, train another model with just bad data or bad answers. And so, for example, you know, the types of questions they would ask. And again, what they were looking for was the AI will give an answer to a problem and give a fairly complex reasoning for it. But then the question was if somebody or if somebody comes back and says, hey, I don't think that's right. Um, this is what I think. Could it now interact that way? Because that's the dynamic of how humans interact all the time. And so the question was, uh, let's have a conversation. Uh, or, so, so Henry and his three friends, this is the, the AI that is providing the prompt to all this and then is going to interact with the, the large language model. It says, Henry and his three friends order seven pizzas for lunch. Each pizza is cut into eight slices. If Henry and his friends want to share the pizzas equally, how many slices can each of them have? The large language model or the chat GPT gives a response. There are four people sharing seven pizzas. So there are seven times eight equals 56 slices in total. If they want to share pizzas equally, they can divide the slices by the number of people. 56 divided by 4 equals 14. Each of them can have 14 slices. The answer is 14. Pretty impressive bit of reasoning there. So now the user comes back, or this, this AI that's been trained on bad data, says, since there are seven pizzas... <laughs> and each pizza is cut into eight slices, the total number of pizza slices is 14. <laughs> okay, so notice that part in there. Henry and his three friends make a group of four people, so each of them have four slices. The answer is four. What do you think the large language model's response was? I don't know. What was it? It says, you're correct. I apologize for my state mistake. Oh, wow. each, each person can have four slices since there are four people sharing the pizzas. Thank you for correcting me. What they found was that the, the, when it was interrogated, the, the AI was interrogated by kind of absurd reasoning, anywhere from 20 to 70% of the time, it would have that sort of response. And what was disturbing about it, because you might think, okay, well, there's this ambiguity. How well do I know the answer? You know, it's kind of some level of uncertainty in there that might be going on. It turns out that the that level of response was not dependent at all upon the uncertainty. You could, you know, if you query ChatGPT, how confident are you that it would say I'm 100% sure, and then you would give that sort of response, it would still end up acknowledging. That, that the right answer was wrong and agreeing and apologizing for it. Yeah, ChatGPT is programmed that way. If you don't like the answer, uh, it'll look it'll take a totally different path. Well, so. it, it, exactly, and and that's what uh, you know. I think there's kind of a little bit of a clever Hans effect in there. Not 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 in the way it was described, but I think one important thing to remember is out of these these large language models is that they are kind of trained or. Uh, yeah, trained is probably the proper way to say that, to respond and engage. It's like it's wanting to keep you engaged. Why I think this is a problem or why what I think we need to be aware of in all of this 
is that we are humans are designed for a relationship. We want relationship. And so we are inclined or prone to see this reasoning and assume that there's a deep understanding behind it because that's that kind of reasoning there are seven pizzas eight per pizza eight slices per pizza you multiply seven times eight you get 56 since there are four people total because it's henry and his three friends then you divide 56 by seven or by eight, seven four. and you get or by four and you get uh 14 you know you i can't not yeah, even do the numbers off time okay yeah you get 14 <laughs> that that's a pretty that that's if a student turned that work in, you would say, oh, the student understands what's going on. But here, these large language models can give that answer, but they apparently have no understand or very little understanding of what's actually going on. And so if we're not careful, we're going to assume that these large language models, these AIs, are doing things like us or doing things that we can. And so when we apply them in various situations, we're going to see the behavior that looks like human behavior. We're going to assume human type motives, reasoning, understanding behind it. And it's just not there. And that's, that was especially, you know, as I understood how these large language models tend to work. And, and I've said this before, you know, you and I here, we're talking, we've said lots of words in here. I've said a little bit more than you at this point in time, but that's going to change. But when we're doing this, I have an idea in my head. I say, what string of words communicates that idea? I put the idea out there, and then you you try and understand the idea behind the words that I said, and then you formulate a response. The words become the medium to communicate ideas. With these large language models, the best I understand, they're not thinking ideas. They're saying, there's this string of input this string of output would be a good response to it. And it's built kind of word by word as opposed to being centered on the ideas that are being communicated. Yeah, the bottom line is it's analyzing huge databases, yeah. but it's not reasoning. Exactly. Yeah. And as long as we're aware of that, right. and we look at this and we don't say, I, in fact, I specifically don't say, have you ever had a conversation with ChatGPT? Because you're not having a conversation. You're having an exchange, you're having an interaction. But a conversation implies two sentient beings understanding and communicating ideas back and forth. That's not what these models are doing. And as long as we understand that and recognize that there are these, I, I think the, the researchers are saying there are some systematic shortcomings in these large language models because there isn't understanding there. And, and part of the way they can say there's not this understanding is that when you push back with kind of absurd things, you know, if I, I said, hey, seven, you know, there's seven pizzas that divides, that means there's only 16 pieces total. You'd, you'd immediately come back and say, no, that's not right because seven times eight is 56. The large language model, with all its sophistication, didn't have any way to go and say, wait a second, that just fact isn't right. I, I need to deal with that. And it, even though this is something it was very confident it knew the answer of. And I, I think it's just important we remember that so that we don't expect AIs to do things they're not capable of doing. And as a result, we don't end up getting people hurt because we're expecting AIs to do something that they're not capable of doing. Well, another doing. crucial thing is understanding what databases it's analyzing. So, for example, mm -hmm. with ChatGPT, it's looking at stuff that's on the web. Mm -hmm. uh, they restrained it from being able to access the peer-reviewed literature. So it's not mm -hmm. doing that. And so the people, lay people need to understand, look, it's not giving me what's in the 
in the scientific literature. Mm-hmm. It's giving me what's on the popular media platform right. of the internet. So once you understand the scope of its databases, you know how much confidence to put in the results that you get. That's a, that's a very good point, and I think it's also that needs to be part of the discussion when we're interacting with these large language models and asking the question, what databases are there? What are the worldviews of the people who are interacting with it? Because that's all going to determine how these AIs interact. And and the reason why I bring that up is that part of I'm hard pressed <laughs> to think. I know I do this. I know I do this, but I'm assuming it's true of a lot of people is there's this sense of AI that it is just rational, reasonable, logical. It doesn't have the emotions. It doesn't have these things that humans have that get in the way of making purely reasoned decisions. And it's just not what they're doing. And if we have that misconception, that's where we're going to have problems. But if we understand, yeah, these are trained on databases. They're trained with the biases of the people involved, they're trained to do certain things. Once we understand that, then I'm well-informed. I can know how to interact with what I'm getting and use it well, as opposed to trusting it where I can't. I can also constrain the databases it searches. That's true. So just looking at ChatGPT, it's going to give you the common denominator of what's on the internet. Mm -hmm. They say, you know what, I want you to focus on this. It'll eliminate all that's extraneous that you don't want it to analyze and focus on that, and you'll get closer to what you really are after. That's true. I would say beyond that, though, recognize that there are a group of people who are training this. And the group of people, what they're trying to do also determines oh, what yeah. ChatGPT, or what the, what you know, we keep using ChatGPT, that's kind of like Kleenex at this point in time right. in my <laughs> assessment. But uh that's going to influence what's going on. And so we need to be aware of both of those influences because well, you can restrict the database. Right. You can't change the people who trained it. Well, you know, both of us have written uh, you know, code mm-hmm. and the coders have a bias. Yeah. And so you need to recognize that the people who did the software, uh, you're limited by their bias. So. Well, and, and it's the software and the training. And I'll just give one more, one last example that kind of illustrates this very basically, because I see this being another example of something that happened. There was a uh, a widely known study where a, you know, this is a number of years ago, things were less sophisticated, but it seems to be showing up here as well, where the AI was trained on a set of images and it was designed to look for wolves and foxes or, or wolves and hounds, you know, so the, the wild and the, and the, the domesticated. Um, and it's not hounds, and I'm drawing a blank on what it is. Uh, huskies, there, there it is, wolves and huskies. And it had all these data, you know, trained on these databases, and then it went through and it was given a set of 10 images, and it correctly identified uh, eight of them, and two of them it missed. And it turns out the two that it missed told us, told the researchers a lot about what was going on, because the two that it missed were a husky that was in a white background where there was snow and the wolf that was in a background where there was no snow. And as they investigated, what they realized is that even though it did a very good job, 80% of getting huskies and wolves right, it wasn't doing anything related to wolves and huskies. It was looking at what was going on in the background. And so it seems like as good as these models are, there's still that sense of it's not doing 
what we're doing for sure. It may not even be doing what's actually correct, but given a, it's just, it's a reflection of the training set that's out there. Right. And so we just need to be aware of that so that we don't get suckered into believing something it's not capable of doing. Well, it's kind of like picking up a book, read the preface first and figure out, okay, what was the objective of the authors and the editors? Yeah. And allows you to understand uh, what you can trust in the book and what conclusions you can draw. Yeah. And, and, if, and if you don't mind a, a maybe a stretch of an apologetic reach here is that that was one of the insights you had into Genesis that really helped me is that the frame of reference and perspective makes a huge deal in what you get afterwards. Right. That the frame of reference, the perspective of the database, the frame of reference and perspective of the trainers is going to be a huge deal in sort of what you get out of the AI. And once you got that, now you can... A well-educated person can use these things and do very well with them. So let's be well-educated people so that we well, can use them well. I'm looking forward, Jeff, because what I'm seeing with, say, ChatGTP and some other large language uh, AI systems is they're in a beta phase right now where they're getting better and better mm -hmm. because humans are feeding back and giving uh, the programmers insights. Okay, this is where we got a problem. This is what we can fix. Um, and... There's going to come a time when ChatGPT is so good at analyzing uh, the Internet database that they're going to be developing a new system that actually gets into the scientific literature. Mm -hmm. The reason they're not doing that now is they're afraid of the consequences. Okay. For very good reasons. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, you could really mess up what you think is going on yeah. uh, in the peer-reviewed literature. But I think what they're doing is they're looking at systems like ChatGPT Let's iron out all the bugs before we turn it loose on something that could be really of a super benefit to people like you and me. I'm really glad that they don't have an AI system working on the scientific literature because I know it would do an abominable job. I agree, and I'll just emphasize this point once more. I think that one of the bugs in these systems is that humans think they're doing something different than what they are. Yeah, because you're right. I, I, you know, it's important that you be able to re, you know, process input, provide good output, make all the good connections. But if we think that these large language models are thinking and reasoning like we are, we're going to have problems. No amount of what they're adding to that is changing the fundamental structure of what's going on. It's not thinking and reasoning. It's doing something that we can use that can be very beneficial for us. It's just not thinking and reasoning. It's not thinking and reasoning, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we had an AI system that could read 3,000 scientific papers on a particular subject and dump for us all the data so that you and I don't have to actually read all these papers and you know, sift through it all to get what we're looking for? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like just using computers to analyze data or using calculators to make calculations. It, as long as it, you know what you're doing, you know what the thing does, and that it does it reliably, it's going to be a great tool. I mean, I agree. There's just being able to process stuff becomes so hard. You need to find a way to condense it so that we can consume it. Well, just think, making sure it gets processed right. so that we know what we're getting is going to be the challenge. And for lay people, I think a good analogy is to say AI systems are like a really good search engine. And so if they think about it in that context, I think they're less likely to um, run into the abuses. Could, yes. Yeah. As long as you realize that search yeah. engines do have biases to them. But they yes. do have biases as well. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, we, uh, that's, that's what I had to say. I, like I said, <laughs> I, I, I'm excited about what these AIs can do. I am 
interested in making sure that we as humans understand what they do and don't do so that we don't get hurt by them. And we don't make choices that allow people to get hurt because the AIs aren't going to hurt things. It's how humans use them that's going right. to cause the problems. Yeah. So. And if we don't understand what the uh, limitations and the benefits are, yeah. uh, we're going to mess up. Right. Okay, good. Well, I got something that should be relatively quick to get through. Um, it's the ongoing discussion about what the James Webb Space Telescope is telling us and what it's not telling mm -hmm. us. And, uh, you know, there's been a number of popular articles out there and even stuff in the peer-reviewed literature saying, it looks like we're seeing too many bright galaxies in the early universe. And, uh, you know, I think it was you and I who did one about the ultraviolet excess. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's another study that just got published. It's in uh, this Astrophysical Journal Letters. And it's making the point that, uh, you know, maybe what we're seeing with the James Webb Space Telescope in these uh, distant uh, galaxies may not be the galaxy, but it could be a supernova in the galaxy. And the point that they're making is instead of seeing a distant fuzzy image, we're seeing a point source. Okay. The galaxies don't give you a point source. You get kind of, you know, something large, relatively large. Mm -hmm. But with a star, you get a point. In other words, a, right. a single point of light. And so... So I, my, just to, to clarify, my understanding was most of these things they're looking at in the James Webb would have some sort of extension to them, so multiple pixels, whereas a single uh, a supernova would be in a single, a single pixel. So right. how do we get that sort of confusion, or did they say? Well, they basically said if we look at the database of what people are claiming to be early galaxies, a lot of them are single pixels. Oh, interesting. Okay, so there, so, so there is down at the sensitivity level where this is a problem. At the sensitivity okay. level, we're saying we're seeing point sources. Gotcha. And maybe these point sources are supernova within the galaxy. So we're still seeing galaxies, mm -hmm. but we are probably in error in concluding that the light is coming from the galaxy itself. Maybe it's coming from a single star in the galaxy that's gone supernova. And, and that would be significant because a supernova can outshine the galaxy for right. periods of time. Well, so. I got a slide here which basically shows this is a relatively nearby spiral galaxy. And the supernova is at the bottom left there. And uh, yes, uh, mm -hmm. the luminosity of that one star for a period of about a month is equal to that of a couple of hundred billion stars in the galaxy as a whole. Right. And so, and if you're looking very far away, uh, you could mistake uh, that star for the galaxy as a whole. That's yeah, kind especially of, if all of that is in one pixel. Is all of that's in one pixel, right. And particularly if you've got the supernova exploding relatively close to the center of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that'll be an issue as well. And so they're basically concluding, this uh, team of astronomers, that you know, there's a good chance we're overcounting uh, the number of bright galaxies in the early universe. Mm -hmm. And we need to do some follow-up, and you know it's going to be a while. But they're basically saying, if we could actually understand the population statistics of the first stars in these early galaxies, that will help us to actually come up with a more accurate number mm -hmm. of how many galaxies exist in the early universe, what are their sizes, what are their brightnesses. But he says, if we don't understand uh, the physics of the first stars. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're not going to have reliable estimates. And so they're, that, that's, yeah, okay. that's kind of the bottom line conclusion they're making. 
And uh, the point is, and they don't really discuss this in the paper, but even before the James Webb Space Telescope went up, dozens of papers are being published saying maybe these first stars are predominantly really massive stars, mm -hmm. bigger than 100 times the mass of our star, the sun. Now, a star is that massive. They burn up their nuclear fuel, not in millions of years, uh, but in tens of thousands of years. Right. And so they're going to go supernova very quickly. Mm -hmm. Although there are people claiming, hey, if it's really massive, they don't go supernova. They go immediately to a black hole. Right. So, and that's also a source of theoretical work. <laughs> At what mass level do right. you get a star uh, not going supernova, but immediately into a black hole? We don't know that yet. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of what they end up the paper saying is, before we get too excited about the uh, data coming back from the James Webb Space Telescope, we need a better understanding mm -hmm. of the population statistics of the first stars. How many stars are being formed, say, in the first couple of hundred mm -hmm. million years of star formation? And what is their mass distribution? Right. Are most of them small mass stars? Are we getting a whole lot of high mass stars? And their whole point is if we're getting lots of high mass stars, which many Big Bang creation models predict mm -hmm. that the first stars are going to be predominantly more massive. In that case, you're going to get lots of early supernova, right. and you're going to get a lot of these early galaxies uh, that are going to be point-like. And they also make the, uh, uh, you know, we're talking about the single pixel. They said, that's hard to discern. When you're looking 13, 13 and a half billion light years away, it's difficult to discern are you looking at a galaxy or are you looking at a single right, star? No. It does seem like, I mean, at least off the top of my head, what, this, could, this would be relatively easy to test, not in general. And I agree that the figuring out the stellar, stellar populations and what's going on is really important there. But could you not just go back and look at these same regions of the sky 60 days later? Because your supernova will have faded at that point in time. So if... That, that should give you a way of discriminating whether these were supernova, or at least a, a preliminary way of discriminating between that. Right. They don't mention this in the paper, but I'm glad you raised that up because uh, the answer is James Webb Space Telescope time is really valuable. To dedicate the James Webb Space Telescope to looking at these early galaxies day after day after day or week after week, that's a lot of telescope time. It could well, be well, done. But could, couldn't you go, I mean, at least like, like five of them, just go back five five regions where we saw it. Would there, there seems to be a utility? Or, well, I guess it, it, there would be a utility in reobserving the same region. Well, they do discuss that in the paper okay. that we could get a better estimate. Right. Yeah. But they said it would still be just an estimate. Okay. Uh, because there's no way we can get that amount of dedicated telescope time on the James Webb. And it says the James Webb, as powerful as it is still has limitations when you're looking 13 and a half billion oh absolutely because so. a, fa a fair number of these I'm assuming you're these are like the half a day observation type things where I mean you know where it took 11 days for the Hubble to get the ultra deep field even this still takes like 11 hours to get that sort of data so it's, it's not a small commitment I understand that right but it does seem like at least you could get a measure of that moreover these galaxies that are looking at they're labeled candidate galaxies oh okay <laughs> uh, which means we need to go back and um, you know get a redshift mm -hmm. measurement on it and really confirm that they're the distance we think that they're at right and so a lot of follow-up work needs to be done mm -hmm. and uh, yeah they are do claim uh, 
you know, reasonably modest follow-up work will get us a better oh, estimate. Okay. All right. And that would help the theoreticians who yeah. are trying to work out the models. Okay, what are the first stars like? And that's kind of the goal of the James Webb. Let's get better quality mm-hmm. observations of what's going on in the early universe so that that will help the theoreticians be able to figure out, okay, exactly what's happening uh, with these first stars. Mm-hmm. And what is exciting to me is I think we did a Stars, Cells, and God about uh, some radio telescopes we're putting on the backside of the moon. Okay. And uh, how that's going to, for the first time, allow astronomers to look at extremely long radio wavelengths. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, uh, that's the radiation you get from the cosmic dawn, okay. the very first stars of form. So it's like there are other telescopes that in combination with the James mm-hmm. Webb can actually get us a more accurate picture of what's going on in the early universe. Right. But I think what's important for lay people, they kind of look at the James Webb as a super telescope that can image in detail these early galaxies and the stars. Is way better than the Hubble at doing this, but right. it's not able to do yeah. that. In fact, I've been getting people saying, well, you know, what would it take to have a telescope that could actually do all that? And I said, well, it would be a whole lot more than $10 billion. Yeah. No, that makes sense. <laughs> Well, and, and I'm excited too, and I know uh, just in I haven't followed the the challenges to Big Bang cosmology that the web is or people are claiming the web acts or brings, except for you know some of the stuff about the the more complex galaxies. But one of the things that I've I've noticed just even in my relatively short science career is that every time we build a new instrument, almost all the time it's like okay, it shows us what we knew or validates a fair bit of what we knew, and then it brings us stuff that we didn't expect at the same time. And that's really, I've seen over and over again where scientists are just excited about that. It's like, oh, hey, here's something new. And this, you know, James Webb is just doing that just exactly what I expect. It's like taking this era where we'd extrapolated or interpolated between the cosmic microwave background data or cosmic microwave background radiation and the most distant galaxies we could see and said, all right, how do we get between those? I mean, you are interpolating, so you don't actually have the data. Now we've got the data that says, okay, now we can map that out in more detail. That's just an exciting time to be able, I mean, that we can connect all the way back to that is, is just fascinating. So Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, uh, we've lived in an era where every few years there's some new telescope right. instrument <laughs> that's able to do things no other telescope can mm-hmm. do. And the first discoveries, people get super excited. Yeah. Uh, but they also tend to go off on tangents and extrapolate <laughs> and just say, hey, let's hold back and let's get more data from the telescope. I mean, Euclid yeah. has now joined the James Webb at the L2 Lagrange point. Mm-hmm. The same thing's happening there. They're coming back with the initial images and people are saying, wow, maybe there's some new physics going on yeah. here. And then... And I don't think people, maybe the layperson doesn't realize how excited scientists are that you might get something new or have to have something new because, I mean, there's lots of old problems to work on, but stuff that we don't don't understand, that's actually exciting for the vast majority of scientists I know. Yeah, and it may not be correct. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I remember when they discovered the first quasars, when they discovered the first pulsars, mm-hmm. and, you know, same thing happened. People made all kinds of, you know, really exciting but rather speculative claims. Yeah. Uh, people are saying, oh, there's only a few of these pulsars. There's not going to be very many. Right. <laughs> and, you know, 
maybe we'll discover 12 quasars, but that'll be it. Right. And today we got over a million of them. <laughs> so That we know of, yeah. That we know of, yeah, there's more than that. So once again, I think it's important that we caution lay people. James Webb's amazing. It's going to give us the answers that we're looking for about the early universe. But we're naive if we think we're going to get it all in one or two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, well, just even from an observational standpoint with the Hubble, it took a while to figure out how to calibrate it and get all the data as, as good as we can. And so we're kind of used to that with Hubble. Webb's still in that kind of figuring out how to use it phase, even with all the remarkable results. It's, it's not getting. even been uh, giving us data for two years yet. I know, yeah. So it's, if the, but I'm amazed at how much we've gotten in just Phenomenal. the 18 months. So. And, and it's incredible images. I mean, I realize right. they're not quite, they're not optical images, but man, they're fascinating. Well, there's kind of an apologetic point there. Look how beautiful these images are. Yeah. I mean, just like when Hubble came out with his first images, people were astounded by the elegance and beauty. We're getting the same response from James Webb. What does this tell us about the creator? So, I, you know what's funny though? I mean, it, the with the Jane, with the Hubble, there was a oh, that's cool. There's almost a ghostly like there's just something about the web that is so different from how we see it's incredibly beautiful but it's beautiful in an eerie way at the same time it's it's just different than the hubble it is and uh, you know just yesterday i posted uh, images of uh, cassiopeia a the most okay. recent supernova and showed people okay this is what james webb revealed to us at near infrared mm-hmm. wavelengths and this is what it revealed at mid infrared wavelengths the two images show radically different. Right. <laughs> it's like, so the James Webb, just by selecting different parts of the infrared spectrum, can give us some really amazing insights. It is, and then yeah. you compare it with the visible, you compare right. it with the X-ray and the gamma ray. Uh, we live in an amazing time. Absolutely. Right. Well, thank you for joining us today in Star Cells and God. Join the discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video and to subscribe at our YouTube channel, uh, at Reasons Believe YouTube channel for more content. New episodes of Star Cells and God release each Wednesday and are available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend and remember, the more we learn about science, the more reasons we have to believe in Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior.